Hi, everyone. Today's incredible episode includes some content that is graphic, shocking, and may be disturbing to some of our listeners, as it should be. This podcast is designed to inspire our next generation of leaders by sharing stories, and that sometimes means remembering and acknowledging the gravity of past events and personal experiences. If you or someone you know is in danger of or is a survivor of sexual assault, please reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Iron Butterfly Podcast, sponsored by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer. And I'm Katie Hopkins. And we will be your hosts. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer. And later, she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. And on this episode, we are joined in the Iron Butterfly offices by Anjuma Goswami Karkara. Anjuma is a firstborn immigrant's daughter and feels honored to have served with the men and women of the intelligence community for over a decade in various capacities. She experienced many major life milestones while serving in the IC, including becoming a wife and mother of two. Her professional journey has led her to opportunities she would have never imagined, like running her own company, becoming an inventor, and now being a CEO of a nonprofit professional services organization. Anjuma worked in the Office of General Counsel at the Defense Intelligence Agency and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and her final position was the Deputy Chief of Staff for NGA. Well, we are really excited that you're here. And, you know, we always joke with our with our um, guests that, you know, we want to start from the beginning. We want to know who you are. We want to know where you grew up, where you're born, what your family was like. And this is no exception. Why don't you just dive in and tell us a little bit about how you grew up? Tell us about your upbringing and what led you to the IC. Awesome. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. area. I was born in Holy Cross Hospital, um, lived in Virginia the most of my life, lived in D.C. for 10 years, went back to Virginia, and uh, then ended up on this side of Virginia, McLean. So not so far from all of these IC entities. I'm the oldest of three, and I am the firstborn immigrant or firstborn American to two immigrant parents um, who are arranged married. So um, they didn't even know each other that well before they got married. I have two younger brothers and I kind of grew up in a place. I grew up in Loudoun County when Loudoun County was one road that led to Broad Run High School, which was down a one lane road. And there was a cornfield on the side. And that was where I went to high school. I grew up with public service a lot. Uh, my dad started his own company that is based on public service. So it was all around me. And I took a pretty non-traditional path to my education. My parents were traditional Indians, do medicine, do engineering, do something in science. And I said, I want to study government. My dad flipped out. He was like, (laughs) you what? What do you mean you want to study government? And he literally pulled out the Washington Post and said, find me one job that has anything to do with government. And I was like, I don't care. That's what I'm going to do. Love my dad, but, and my mom, and they were like, well, if that's what you're going to do, then leave UVA, come on home, and you can go to Nova or George Mason or someplace around here where you can go in the morning and come back in the evening. And I said, I will not. And they said, well, we're not going to pay for it. And so I said, don't. And so then I went back to UVA and I started two jobs and I paid for everything. Like they paid for my basics, my, you know, tuition and my books, but like room and board, any kind of food plan, nothing. So I paid for it. And six months into it, my parents are like, my mom calls me and she's like, what are you doing? I said, nothing illegal. And I don't need your help. (laughs) And it was rough. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't smooth sailing, but I did it. 
I graduated UVA and then I decided to go to law school. That had been a dream since I was five that I wanted to be a lawyer. I actually wanted to be the secretary of state, which was pretty random. Not the president. It's a very I, advanced dream job. It wasn't, I child. wanted to be the secretary of well, state. And it's just one. Like there's only one of those. Maybe that's <laughs> what, right. I didn't, you know, most, most of the kids were like, oh, you know, at that point you wanted to be the first lady president. You know, those were like these big audacious dreams that you have. I was like, no, I just want to be the secretary of state. <laughs> and then my friends were like, what is that? I kind of know, but it's a cool job. You get to like talk about diplomacy and international affairs and you affect the world dynamics. And they're all looking at me I like- I'm picturing you as like a kindergartner, like holding court in the playground. Oh, totally. Talking about yeah. diplomacy. So, yeah. So that was me. And my dad, you know, was not very thrilled that I wanted to be a lawyer. Again, it wasn't doctor. It wasn't an engineer. And it was like the soft subject. But I graduated. I was supposed to go to a different school. I took a year off after going to um, work at Hogan and Hartson. I ended up at Hogan and Hartson uh, because I used I did an internship at the White House with Cheryl Mills, who was the one of the first female um, general counsels for a president. And I loved her. Amazing woman, just really smart. And I said, I want to go to law school, but my parents don't want me to go to law school. And she goes, well, why don't you go work at a law firm and see if you like it? So I worked at Hogan and Hartson. It was their first office in the, in the Virginia area. They had their big office in D.C. And I loved it. So I applied to law school and then I ended up at American and they had this whole program of you get to do legal work while you're in school. So I did it. And that's where I kind of really fell in love with wanting to serve in Washington, D.C. because I got exposed to it. I worked at the um, Justice Department and started Washington Law School's first internship for WAVA, WAVA the um, um the law for Virginia against there was a, a violence against women's act. So that wow. violence against women's act was kind of in their second iteration. And I did my internship at the justice department. And that's where I started going, Oh, this is amazing. You can do public work. You can combine it with law. And I loved it. And so I went to law school, I finished law school, and then I started working at a law firm because I had to pay my law school bills <laughs> off. And I was like, well, there went that. So we'll just pay the bills. And I did. I kept, you know, working in a law firm for a while. And then um, I had a, an experience in a law firm and I decided I'm done with that. I'm going to go do something else. And I was going to look for another law firm. And people said, well, why don't you just start your own law firm? I'm like, I don't want to do that. That's a lot of work and I don't want to do that. And I said, no, no, you should try that. So I did. I did that for, I did that for a while and it was great. It was fun except for I got in a car accident right here on 123. And I hurt my neck. Not, it was bad enough that I had to be on medication. So I couldn't do my cases very coherently. And I realized I had one of two choices. I either have to hire people and really actually develop this law firm. And it's not just me working for myself, or I need to shift gears. So I said, well, let me apply to two jobs. I applied to a job at the Department of Labor to be um, an employment labor attorney in their solicitor's office. And I applied to a job at DIA. One was a GS-14 and one was a GS-15. I got the Department of Labor job, working it for six months, loving it. And I got a call saying, hey, we'd like to interview you at DIA. And I said, okay, you know, this, I'll come and interview. And I met several people in the, in the legal department there. And, they, and then a couple months after that, they hired me. And I said, oh, I'm really working these cases. I got to finish this case. And George Pierce, who happened to be the head of DIA at the time said, look, and he has a very, if you know George Pierce, he has a very stoic voice. He's a Harvard grad and it's very controlled. And he says, you either need to come now or don't. <laughs> okay. And I was like, okay, I'm coming. And so I end up at DIA and they hired me because they were dealing with a lot of employment labor issues. And that's the story. That's how it all got started. I started working on those cases. I started helping them think about the intersection of employment labor law with the Department of Defense. And one of our, within the first month that I was there, I told George Pierce and the rest of the senior attorneys that they had to let this employee who happened to be blind take the rifle exam so that he could actually qualify or not to go downrange. 
they called me out of my financial management course and they sat me down in the, in the cafeteria of DIA and they're all sitting there and I sit down. It's like literally within the first month of working there. And they said, so we hear that you wrote an opinion that we have to let this individual who's blind take the rifle test so that he can go downrange. That doesn't sound like a good idea. I'm like, I don't know if it's a good idea or not. I just know that that's the law. And so we just need to let him take the test. And they're like, well, we can't let him take the test. Yes, we can. And then if he doesn't pass, he won't go. And they're like, well, what if he passes? I'm like, let's cross that bridge when we get to it. They're like, fine. So they let this man take this test. He passes with like blind colors. He does better than a lot of people who were completely able to see. And then I had another meeting and they're like, well, now what? And I'm like, well, you you kind of got to let him go. And they're like, what? We, they're not going to agree to this at the combatant command. I said, well, he's not a military member. He's a civilian and that's the civilian law. So we had to like talk to the SJA. We had to get all these people involved. And they're like, this is really, this is a little strange. They sent him. First of all, he was an analyst. So he wasn't even outside of the wire. He was inside the wire. But of course, and then they said, well, this is a really, this is a combat zone. I'm like, yeah, well, it's been a while since there's been any combat. So that's a little hard test threshold to make at this point. I get that it's dangerous. I get that we want to keep everybody safe. But the threshold, you're going to have a hard time meeting the threshold. So essentially, there was these interactions, this pull, push-pull between external civilian law and then military law and intelligence and safety and all these things, they were all clashing together. So for someone like me, it was amazing work because it's, it was intellectually, it, it was intellectually curious. It was, you know, there was a lot of elements to it. So he goes, this man goes, he ends up being their absolute best analyst and they beg for him to come back after he finished his tour. And then the following year, DIA won the disability word from DOD for its process. And I was like, <laughs> I still have a job. Because <laughs> had that become a disaster, they would have been, it's because of her, we had to send him to this place and make him do all this stuff. So I was very thankful. I, I never met him. I don't know his name. I don't even remember his name. It was like one of those rules and cases you forget people's names. You just forget. You just remember the facts and yeah. keep it moving. Um, but it was my first interaction with the IC. And it was amazing because of all of the elements that went, went, it, went into it. But it was definitely a little nerve wracking because I was like, okay, this is one of those points where you hired me for an expertise, but you, I'm not sure you really want to hear what I have to say. But they accepted it. They moved on with it. And then it, it turned out pretty awesome. There's so many things about the beginning of that. I mean, from the beginning till now that we could dive into. I think one thing that really stood out, I, well, there are lots, but one thing that stood out for me was um, that the IC wasn't your first career um, and that you you had this like perseverance or this like drive where you're like, no, I'm going to UVA and I'm going to figure out how to do it despite what my parents say. Then you're like, I'm going to a law firm. I'm going to figure it out and see if I like it. Then I'm going to go to, you know, you just, you just kind of steamrolled ahead. And I think that's such an awesome lesson for people, not just early in their career, but throughout their career that you can change whenever you want. You can learn a new skill. You can change a career. You can change a traje trajectory. Oh yeah. I'm not, I'm no longer a lawyer. I'm a CEO of a engineering firm, which is worlds from where I started from. So I, I definitely think life in general just requires you to be super gritty. You just, you just you have to be super authentic to you and super gritty. And say, yeah, I'm just going to, I'm going to do me and I'm going to do it pretty hard. I guess I'm kind of curious. I also have a million questions. <laughs> like, I mean this question in the best possible way. Did people ever tell you, like, you are crazy? Yeah. Can my mother. <laughs> I mean, she used to tell me when I used to come home from school, you're like the Tasmanian devil. You come in here, you roll through everything and then you just leave and it's like everybody has to come what the hell just happened yeah plenty of people and i think yeah plenty that's so funny i i just feel like this is something we always talk about people have an idea of what intelligence is right and 
every experience that you have just named is, I almost guarantee, if you, if the average person wrote down a hundred things that they thought the intelligence community did, that would not be one of them. Definitely. I knew that service was important. I loved being in Washington. Never in any of those thought patterns was the intelligence community part of it. And even when I read the job announcement for DIA, the only reason why it stood out to me is because it was employment labor law. Not because it was the, I didn't know what the intelligence community was. I was like, it's a GS-15 job and it does employment labor law. I'm going to apply to it because I've got to figure out, I'm in this, I was in this inflection point, either build this company or do something different. And the Department of Labor was easy. I understood what that was. I, you know, it was easy for me to correlate, but I didn't understand even the description for DIA. I still remember it was like, we help combat support. I'm like, I have no idea what that means. But I do know that I can do employment labor law. And I one of the things that I used to tell people later is, hey, you got to make these job vacancy announcements like for normal people, right? They have acronyms in them and all this like, you know, mumbo jumbo that nobody understands except for the people who are in it. So people can't see themselves in there and say, wow, I could do that. Or I could use my graphic art you know, background to do well, ops intel. I remember when I first started and I'm reading that and I'm like, I... I, I don't fit that profile. Um, and then you have mentors who say, no, you do. You yeah. just have to look at it in a different way. But, you know, when you're right out of college or you're, you're changing careers and you're looking at these things, it's really intimidating. Yeah, it definitely isn't the first thing that you think of. It feels like something way off in the distance that only, you know, certain people are allowed to get involved with. And like, you have to be selected. Like at UVA, have, they have these seven secret societies. It's like, I want to be in that. I don't know what it is. I don't even know how I get in. That's how I feel. That's how you kind of think about the intelligence. Like, that sounds cool. So who taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, you, we Follow want you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Come to this room, right? It and you're, then you realize it's not like that. There's arts, you know, there's people with arts backgrounds, with language backgrounds, with engineering backgrounds legal backgrounds, ran their own company before. There's so many different types of people. So it's, um, it's, it's pretty incredible. And, you know, one of my other first experiences was I didn't know if I wanted to join the IC because I was over 30 and still single. And my parents were like, you need to get married. And I was like, okay, well, you know, it's not like I can go to a Cracker Box store and open and be like, ah, I'm married. Yeah, it's like, it's a little hard um, or it's not really working out for me. And my mom goes, if you do this thing, nobody will want to marry you because it's so different and secret. And I said, yeah, I think she has a point. So I had a mentor, speaking of mentors, right? Because they they do actually really change the way you look at everything or how you perceive what is or isn't. She wasn't in the intelligence community, but she came out from Arizona. She was a judge, a federal judge, um, a point, federal appointed judge, really amazing woman who found so much balance in her life. I really admired the way she could do a little bit of this and that. And she was still a professional person, but traditional in her, you know, how she raised her kids and stuff. So I always looked up to her like, oh, how do you do all this stuff? So she comes out to DC and she goes, you know, you have to apply for the, you know, you need to go to the Department of Defense. And I said, I do. She says, yes, you do. Because there's not a lot of women like you and they need to see women like you. I said, what if I don't get married? She's like, hmm. I don't think you not joining the department is either going to get you married or not going to get you married. You're going to get married to the person that wants to marry you no matter what job you have. I said, okay. So I went to, you know, there's that conference that happens every year, like women lead women in intelligence or something. It happens every year in Washington. They hold this conference. Well, that year, Joan Dempsey was the guest, the head speaker of the event. And she's talking and she's so articulate. And she says she, she, she at one point mentioned something about meeting her husband in the IC. And I was sitting at this round table way back in the room. And I was like, oh, gosh, I really wonder how she met her husband. And was he in at that point? I didn't know if she said he was in the IC or not in the IC. And I said, I wonder if he's in the IC or not in the IC. So a girl behind raises her hand and Joan calls on the girl. And I turn around and she goes, she has a question for you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I don't know if I, you know, it's like the least appropriate question for this, like women in the intelligence, how we aspire in our career and stuff. And I go, so how exactly did you meet your husband? And the room just starts laughing. And I was like, 
Right. Well, I mean, that really was my question, but so she con- at that point she tells the story about how she met her husband, which I don't even remember now because I was completely wigged out that I had to ask this question. And then I followed up to write her a note and I said, you know, I wanted to meet you. I need a mentor in the IC. I had no idea who Joan Dempsey was. I she just seemed like a really cool woman. So she met me. I've known her now for so long, and it was probably a good seven or eight years into us meeting each other that I learned that she's like Tish Long's mentor. Mentor. I'm like, oh, she's Tish. And so I met her for, I'm like, I didn't know you were a big deal. And she's like, that's what I love about you. You just were you. And I thought you were bold. And so she's an amazing, she really is an amazing woman. And she's who introduced me to Tish later. So I got lucky Two like amazing, amazing women. Yeah. That's so awesome. So this is something that you've said a couple times now, and I'm just, I'm really curious. I want to kind of ask it explicitly, which is you wanted to do something in government since you were holding court, holding court in the kindergarten playground, right? Like, what was it about government that really drew you? Like, you mentioned just like you wanted to serve, like serving was important to you. Like, why government? What drew you? So it's not as it, it, it won't come out as linear as maybe some would hope. I it's connected to why I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, while I was studying in at UVA, you get exposed, especially as a woman studies minor, you get exposed to a lot of things that women and children go through that I didn't actually understand as much or could appreciate until I started to read about it. And then the, then I went to law school and I was an equal justice fellow it was probably one of the more, I don't know, gut-wrenching experiences I've ever really had. I was a sophomore or a second year in law school, and I was in the program, and I was working at Montgomery County State Departments. They were prosecuting a case in which a man had been um, molesting his daughter for a long period of time. And I realized at that point that the law was a very powerful tool for women and children. And it then connected me to the Violence Against Women's Program at the Justice Department, which started to make me feel like there's a platform that could be used to affect real change, right? If this Violence Against Women's Act could come into creation, could it affect the way people are being treated in a way that's not happening now? And that happens at a government level. No matter how you believe about a particular law, should it or shouldn't it, there is power and there is influence at that level. And there's service at that level if you're able to be part of that influential force. Um, and so for me, it was the platform to serve. It was, I could do it here, you know, at my community center, which you should, but it was the ability to say, I got a law degree to do something. And the something should be to affect change in things that I really believe in. So that's that's kind of how it morphed and changed and the platform changed. And, you know, then I realized that I couldn't just, I was on the day that we had to prosecute this particular father, which I pulled all the, you know, witness statements together. I was on the DC Metro and I had to get off because I was so sick to my stomach about what we were about to do and what if he got away with it. And, you know, it was very, very, uh, it was just not a, it was a good experience, but it was just not a good experience. I got back on the Metro. I got to the court courthouse and he was in the process of confessing. He confessed everything. This, this man even had gotten his daughter pregnant and instead of stopping, he got a vasectomy so he could keep doing it. It was really bad. And so I think in that, in that world, sometimes you don't realize like there was no option for this young child. Her mother didn't believe her. Um, She had social services trying to help her, but had it not been for some system, some process, where would she have ended up? Where, what would have been her outlet? Um, And I think that's the power that government holds is that no matter what your position is, when you're in an opportunity to affect something, that's pretty powerful. And in the intelligence community, what people don't really realize is 
the amount of influence that the intelligence community and the information that we pull together has on how we actually are recognized internationally, what play and what power we have on influence, how that contributes to our security and the fact that there's so much that we take for granted. It's because there's people who are sitting in multiple just different agencies collaborating to say, I think I know what's going to happen. I think I know how I can help our forces or our allied forces do something better. And that's exactly what happened in a Montgomery County courtroom for one little person, right? It's, it's just magnifying the impact. And I think that's really powerful when you're able to magnify the impact. I think that is so profound. And I think what I love about it is you see government as an instrument to do things. And I had never really thought about it this way, but it seems like people see bad things in the world and they say, oh, this is proof that government doesn't work, right? And people get discouraged and like lose hope. Whereas like what I hear you saying is the flip side of that coin, which is like, perhaps, but then it's also an instrument to change those things. It might be one of the only instruments that has massive change is the power that government and the power and the influence that that can have. That's, I think being able to be a part of that is pretty incredible. And then to be a part of a smaller group that says, and it's not so small, but to be a part of that other family that says, every day we wake up, our goal is to protect our national security, our interests. That's our goal. We do it no matter if I'm doing it through the legal world, if I'm doing it through human capital, if I'm doing it through IT, if I'm doing it through because I'm an analyst. My only job every day is to ensure that everything I do is here to protect and preserve national security. That's really powerful. That means that's, you know, for somebody who's the first person to be born from two immigrants, that's a pretty unique place. I felt really proud that this is a country that takes two people who've been here only 40 plus years and their daughter's been able to be accepted into that international security. Name a country. Name a country that says, yeah, you just came here. We're going to let your child be in the most upper echelons of knowledge about what our top secret information is and trust them with it. It doesn't happen around the world. It makes me tear up. You know, this season's theme. Uh, for season five of Iron Butterfly is the butterfly effect. And I feel like that's what you're talking about. And um, I know we're talking about institutions, but I wonder how you feel about individuals and how they make change and, and how you see that either within yourself or you've seen it in others, how they make change, you know, on an individual level or an institutional level or on a global level. Almost everything starts one person at a time, which then influences more and more and more, and then things become part of a process. For me, my journey through the IC was has been the best part of my career. I had a career before, and then I had the IC, and I'm starting a new career now. Um, the intelligence community was, if I put you know personal and professional together, every every good thing thus far has happened to me in the intelligence community. I found my husband in the intelligence community. He didn't work in the intelligence, but he was in the intelligence. It was when I was in the intelligence community. I had my first daughter uh, when I was in general counsel's office and I was acting deputy general counsel. I had my second daughter when I was uh, the deputy chief of staff for NGA. Um, and so all of my marked personal moments are very much connected to my professional moments. And it's interesting because when I applied for the job as the deputy chief of staff, um, which at that point was called the um, deputy executive director of NGA, my boss, a male, I went to his office and I said, look, I can be here every morning at 730, but at 430, I need to go home and pick up my daughter. I just, I need to do that every day. And you can tell me that's not okay. That doesn't work for this job. Because I rather serve the job or not take the job, and then you just feel like you had to make this work, right? It's like sometimes I would think of it as you can't tell somebody I want to be a construction worker, but I can't work July and August and part of September, right? You, <laughs> okay, uh, you know. And so I took the national security mission very seriously, and I think a lot of people do. And his response was, "We can make that work." We can make that work. What was so profound is I got more questions during my four years as deputy chief of staff 
I mean, I helped manage their, the budget, the IT, the, you know, collaboration amongst divisions, whatever the case might be. The most important, the most question I got repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly is how exactly do you do this job and have two small kids at home? That was like all the time I got that Who are you getting those questions from, from men or from women? Both. Hmm. Both. Mostly it started in the first couple of years. It was uh, from women. And as the years went by, it was from both. It was from both men and women. He said, how do you do this? How do you manage to show up and, you know, not miss ops intel and still go to the nursing room? And I'm like, it's tricky, especially when it goes over time. <laughs> like, you're like, oh, come to an end because I got to go. But it was tricky, right? But um, I got questions from both. But for me, the, the, the women like Joan, the women like Tish, Tish was the person who made me a senior executive. Um, and uh, I'll tell a little story about that because it was a powerful story where she lovingly, I will say, <laughs> my dad and my, my husband straight. And I was like, yes, I love it. But I'll tell that story in a second. Um, but my, you know, my, I had such great bosses that were willing to take the risk of maybe not having me as this exclusive, I'm here whenever you need me person. And they said, no, I think you can do this job and still do that job. And I'm going to support you. And they a hundred percent did a hundred. I took five months off with Aria. I took five and a half months off with Isha. And it was tough because we were like, Oh, when are you coming back? I'm like, coming back in five and a half months. I had more women say to me, are you sure about that? And I know why they want to protect the journey. They want to protect the opportunity they want to, but it was tough to hear at times that part. Um, and then I had other people who say, do it because you're going to show others that it's definitively possible. It's possible. And it was possible. I did it. But I had a lot of people who say, we're here to support you. It was because I was committed and they wanted to support the journey. It was, but it's hard. I think it's interesting because I, I think it's important what you said about hearing, you know, the support you received, but also, you know, folks saying, are you sure you want to do this? And that they were women. And I don't actually look at that as, and you explained why, right? They wanted to protect. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, that we're placed in this really awkward position, right? Because we're still trying to be on an equal playing field. Yeah. And yet, and, and we want to be like, yes, you take that five and a half months off. But then there's that pull of, you know. There's a reality of right. there's a, there's always a cost benefit for everything. If you're not playing, if you're not in a game for five and a half months, you're going to lose out on some of those opportunities and some of those things that are happening in those five and a half months that you can't contribute to. It's not like you can do it online. It's the IC. You got to be there. At least that's the way it is right now. Right. Well, and we're going to get into that. In You've got to be there. Right. <laughs> so it's the, the, the women that made those comments, it was from the purest place of, yes. I want to protect your journey. You are a contributor. You have, you have a place to go, but how do you balance that? And I feel like we find ourselves in that situation quite a bit. What's really fascinating is more and more men are finding themselves in that situation. And they're feeling that, that tension of, I actually would like to be home for a little while. I want to experience this. And I don't know if I'm allowed to, I don't know how to bring it up. And who are they turning to? Other women, because those are the ones that have actually been there and say, this is how you do it, right? Wow. Balance it this way, approach it this way. You know, think about what your next job would be, start planning for it, right? All those things that we did, which I knew I had to save all these. Now it's crazy that we don't, it's thankful that we don't have to save all of those hours of leave so you can take the time because that's what it was like, no, 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 we can't go on that vacation. I have to have, I need to have this much leave. And then you have to put it on the calendar and mark it all out and they don't have to do that anymore. And so men are like, oh, so there is this 12 weeks that are given to me and I want to take some of it. Um, I think that is a powerful place that women who've gone through it now have in the conversation that men want to get access to where we wanted to get access to. How do you grow in your career? How do I get to know that person? How do I network to get to that position? Some of those tables are now changing where men are like, so how do you do parental leave and still manage to put in your, your, your package for 
promotion. <laughs> okay, we'll tell you how to do that, right? Been there, done that twice now, right? And so that's a huge, um, that's a huge shift, and it's healthy. Tish, I want to tell the story yes, about Tish. I get to NGA, and um, Tish was almost on her way out, and I was like, Tish, I, I really, 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 really want you to do my, um, my promotion. And I might have been like in the last tail end of her thing. And she goes, I'm going to do it. And I said, thank you. Thank you. So I call my mom. I call my dad. I call my, you know, my mom's oldest brother is sort of her sponsor, if you will, into the United States. I call him and my husband and, you know, I do all the bells and whistles. I want them. I wanted them to be proud. Right. I wanted them to see you. She's arrived. You know, she's not the, like, you know, the dumb kid who chose the law. And um, so I, uh, I ended up, um, doing all the bells and whistles. Like they got the car to like the police car to take them and park them and all this stuff. So they get there and they're like, yeah, you know, we don't, we, you know, they're making jokes about it and they're, they're being very like casual Tish in pure Tish manner. She sits them down on her sofa and she goes, can I tell you the importance of this? I was like, this is going to be so good. (laughs) So it's like, I literally was watching it happen. And she basically She'll hate me for this saying this, but she schooled my dad and she schooled my husband. Like, this is a big damn deal. I mean, that's not what she said, but that's what she said, right? She's like, this is a big damn deal. Do you know how many, how few senior executives there are in the intelligence? My dad and my husband were silent. And I was like, I love her. I knew I loved her, but she really put it in perspective for them. Like, And she said, you should be really proud. And then we went and had my promotion ceremony and they didn't give me like, there were no more jokes after that. It was completely purely serious because she's an engineer and she's like, I know what it means to be an engineer. I'm not one anymore. And then she, she was like, and I did this and I did this and your daughter's done a lot of things and she's here for a reason and this matters. And it was great. It was really wonderful. The whole, the, like to have someone like her talk to someone like my dad, who's like, you want to talk to an engineer? Talk to me. I'm an engineer. And I'll tell you what this means. She put math on it. She put percentages on it. And it's like, I love Tish Long. And so she she was really amazing about it. And she's so empathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, she's super smart, but she does it in the most loving way. Yeah. I haven't actually met a, a director of any of my directors who's as empathetic and connected has that much emotional intelligence. That is a really great Tish story. And it just, I, I hope she doesn't get mad for me saying this either, but it just encapsulates her. Like she is so warm and empathetic and she's super smart. And um, I, I love her to death too. So I love that story and I'm so happy that you shared it. I can't wait to tell Tish that we were talking about her behind her back. <laughs> yeah, she's she's pretty darn amazing. Um, and then to know that Joan and Taylor, like, oh my gosh, this is like the holy grail of women. <laughs> um, so yeah, they're 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 very cool. They're just very cool people. And you just you want to grow up and be like Tish and Joan. It's like I want to be them. I want to be able to be there for my family. But no kidding, like be very gritty when it comes to my work and my career and rise. So they're great people to, to follow after. So I know Megan just mentioned this and I think next we want to, you've talked a couple times about how you are now a new budding entrepreneur who yeah. is starting a new business. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? So the reason why I left the intelligence community was partially because I think it was just maybe time for change. Sometimes you think, okay, um, what to do next? And I was, I was, you know, four years had gone by and the most of it was in COVID. There was so much that I learned about the administration of an entity and the interplay between the administration of it and people through COVID. I mean, it was like, 10 years of information, all jam-packed into three years of process, people, emotions, et cetera. So it was a, it was a long haul. And then I'm like, well, what do I do next? Like, what's the next thing for me? During that time, I had a lot of opportunity to think about what's going to happen with the intelligence community. And is it going to really marry up with life as we know it? And I saw so many of my friends 
being able to get in a car, go sit in, I don't know, Wichita, Kansas for three months and work from their laptops and enjoy the scenery and go hiking. And my husband's like, yeah, our job sucks. <laughs> we can't go anywhere. And by the way, I went to work every single day. There was no like, you know, sit at home during COVID. And it was, it was pretty nerve wracking. I had to take my kids to daycare, not knowing like, what is this disease? We used to come home every day and like strip down, wash everything. It was very, it was an unknown thing. And my husband was like, you know, you take your kids to daycare every single day because that's like, what if they get sick? And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't have any other option. This is my only option. I have to go to that building. And then one day I said to myself, wait, why do I have to go to the building again? What is forcing us to go to the building? So I really started to think about that. And then I started to ask myself, what if I could just be anywhere and be my own skiff? I put something on. I can control what I'm looking at. I can control what I'm listening to. I can protect it all. And I can do it anywhere at any point. Something like that would change the way we do everything in the IC, from how we recruit to how long we recruit to how much we ask people to stay. Like right now it's, you come on and they spend thousands of dollars to get people secured or to get their classification. What if you only needed to get classified or to get um, clearances for one portion of it? And you came in to provide your services, the most exquisite talent in AI or ML, or for that matter, or graphic artists, right? To say, we need you for this and only this. You come and do it. You participate in the intelligence community. You leverage your skills. The intelligence community benefits from it. And the the whole dynamics change. So I just started digging into that more and more and more. And then I submitted a patent. And I used to stay up. I used to, so my normal kind of routine is kids go to bed at eight. And then for about a year from eight to 11, I would work on my, my invention. And then I submitted it for a patent. So I have a, I have a pen, patent pending and now I'm working on my uh, first prototype. We love a good side hustle. It's definitely a side hustle. And so one of the one of the cool parts is I got a chance to talk to General McChrystal about it, right? And I'm like, oh my God, this is so scary. He, so I get on the phone. He's like, you know, he's very stern, right straight to the point. He's like, you know, he says, I'm not sure we want a whole bunch of people just doing work from everywhere. And I said, yeah, that's not what this is about. So then I gave him statistics and I talked to him about the meaning of it. And by the end of it, he's like, if you make this work, this could really change things. And I said, so then he goes, what do you want from me? And I go, well, actually you're the ilk of person that I need to convince that this is a good idea. So anything you tell me about why you don't like it or what you think won't work helps me make this better. Um, but it was a really incredible moment to say, I would have never in a million years, you know, that little girl who grew up in Loudoun County, who went to Broad Run High School, who was a kid of two immigrant parents who like, you know, got teased and spit on and stuff, that she would be talking to a four-star general about an invention. What the heck? I think half the battle sometimes is people are afraid to ask the question, right? They're afraid to ask for what they want. They're afraid to ask how to do something or, you know, it's a barrier for some people, right? But what I see from you is you've never been afraid to put yourself out there to get, and I think it's sometimes maybe with some people, they are afraid to ask the question because they're afraid of rejection or they're afraid of a barrier or they're afraid of something like that. But you seem to not be afraid of that. And what would you say to the people out there that are, they're afraid of the idea they might have, but how to do it or to reach out to a Stanley, you know, General McChrystal and say, I want to get in front of you and talk to you about my idea or to, you know, ask for a promotion or anything. You know, what would you say to those people who are a little bit afraid? So um, I had a really formidable experience that allowed me to go oh, it's okay to fail because there's failure is an option because it's really not an option. And what I mean by that is I started working at a law firm in Virginia with a very high profile female attorney because I wanted to be like her. I worked my butt off to do everything I could to please her. And it was incredibly 
unsuccessful. Um, it just didn't work. Um, frankly, she was just really mean. You know, like I would wake up with leg cramps. I was, I had anxiety. I was stressed. And every Friday I used to go to dinner with my parents and my dad's like, this isn't working. This isn't working. I'm like, I, I just need to, I want her to like me. I really, I mean, she's like the epitome of being a female lawyer and I need her to like me. And she didn't like me. And then afterwards I was like, oh my God, what is my life amounted to? I'm not married again. Right. Um, I'm not even a good lawyer because she says I'm not a good lawyer. So what, what value do I have? I can't, I'm not successful in anything. And I walked into the firm. I had worked on a motion for summary judgment. She reamed me out in front of everybody. I went to the bathroom. I threw up. I came back and I quit. I was like, as soon as I said I quit, I was like, oh my God, what the have I just done? <laughs> you can swear on the podcast. It's fine. <laughs> I was like, oh my God what am I going to do? I have an apartment in DC. And so of course, you know, you like squish down and you call your dad, dad. <laughs> I just quit my job. So of course, as every dad does, he worked, he had an office in Herndon, Virginia. He, we met at the Kmart in Herndon, Virginia, at Starbucks. My dad loves tea. And he goes, now tell me why you quit. And so I explained it. He goes, okay, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. He goes, well, I have to go on a business trip, but you're going to go home, stay at home. And then we'll talk about this when I come home. So I come back, he comes back and he goes, why don't you go visit your brother? My brother was in Mayo Clinic at the time. He was doing his residency and I get off the plane and my brother goes, you look awful. I'm like, ah, gee, thanks. This was really worth the trip. I don't think that was the point of this trip. I think you're supposed to make me feel better. And my brother said, do you know, nobody really cares about your problems. You're a microcosm in the universe. Like get over yourself, move on pick yourself up and keep on moving because nobody really cares what happened to you. And I was like, and it kind of just went, wait, he's right. Right. Like it happened. It's over. I have what it takes to like brush myself off and move on. My brain works. My legs work. I'm healthy. I have an education. I can figure this out. And I did. That's when I came back and I started looking for new jobs. And then they were like, start your own law firm. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. And that's actually what I did. I started my own law firm. It taught me very quickly that what you think you're going to fail at, you have too many blessings, that there's a lot of cushions underneath. Like if you've gone to school, you have more cushioning than the vast majority of the world. You can figure it out. If you have your, if your legs work, your eyes work, your brain works, you can figure this out. There are too many people who don't have those things and are figuring it out. And he was right. You're a blimp in the universe. Nobody really cares. So either you figure it out or you moan about it. And I think if you just kind of go, what is the worst case scenario? I'm going to ask for a promotion and they're going to say no. And then there's two options. I leave because I think I deserve a promotion or I suck it up because I need the job. I'm going to go talk to, you know, General McChrystal about my invention. He's like, that is really dumb. I'm going to hear him say, ah, whatever. Or I'm going to be like, yeah, he's probably right. Right. When you like play out the scenario, yeah. it ends up being in, in many ways, you are in control. You just have to choose to pick a path, right. To say, I'm going to do this because I want to like law school. My parents didn't want me to, when I was a kid. They didn't want me to do it. I'm like, I'm doing it anyways. What's the worst that could happen? I get a law degree. I love that so much. Me too. I feel like we could have 10 more podcasts. I I think we need a masterclass with Anjuma, like for no joke. <laughs> we need a masterclass. I hope more people choose to go to the intelligence community. It's an amazing experience of purpose and mission. And the story that I tell everybody when they tell me, hey, you know, you could, why don't my husband is one of them within our first years of marriage, he said, why don't you leave? You can make three times as much money than what you're making right now. I'm like, that's like telling a parent, you know, you'd get more sleep if you didn't have kids. Yeah. They're just not the same thing. I, you told me that before. And I, I feel like I need you to say that again. I, I want people to really think about that because it really hit me when you said that. So it's, you know, there is a lot of things you theoretically give up 
when you join the intelligence community, your ability to kind of share your job and like, oh, here's what happened, De- depending on where you are in the intelligence it it can sometimes feel kind of isolating, but so is parenthood. It feels very isolating. You went from being able to go out on a Friday or sleep in on a Saturday to like, you can't even go to the bathroom by yourself, you know, <laughs> or you can't leave the house with your friends. Or So the way that I explained it to him it, or the way that I explained it to people, it's like, yes, I could make a lot of money. I, I could, I could sleep. I could make a lot of money out somewhere else, but that's like telling me as a parent that I could sleep more if I didn't have kids. It's, I don't, what do you want me to say to that? It's true. I would sleep more if I didn't have kids, but what are you asking me to do? Give up my kids? Because that's how it feels to tell somebody, give up the purposefulness, the mission focus, the family feel of being in the intelligence community is like telling a parent, if you get rid of those kids, you can sleep more. I'm going to have a dream about that tonight, I think. When 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 she first said that to me, uh, we were at lunch and it just was like, whoa, I wish everyone could well, hopefully they will on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, Anjuma, we are so sad that this episode is over. I feel like it's gone by in a flash. I'm just so excited to share this with everybody. So we end each episode with the same question, which is in keeping with the name of this podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you were going to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? Oof. I should have thought about that one more. It would definitely be a fierce something or another. And maybe that's what it is. Fierce something or another. <laughs> I love that. That would be my code name. Fierce something or another. <laughs> it does feel a little Tasmanian devilish. Yeah. Which is why I love it. Yeah. I love it. No, that I think that's perfect. Yeah. And it was, it was uh, spontaneous. Yeah. We have never had anyone be spontaneous with it. This is our first time. I love it. Also, you should know that our production assistant, Amanda, her codename starts with Fierce, too. So you know, oh, we were twins. Kindred spirit in the room. I've sensed the fierce energy across the room. <laughs> That's awesome. So we we cannot thank you enough for joining us today. Um, this is super fun. You better be careful because we, we are probably going to ask you back. <laughs> I just appreciate being able to share my story. When I first started reading about it, I thought to myself, man, it really brought up a lot of emotions to think about the intelligence community and like just the experiences of, for instance, just driving to work and knowing you dropped your kids off at daycare, but you got to go to this place and do this real work and you're really excited about it, but it's so emotional. So I remember writing Megan and saying, gosh, this is bringing up so much stuff for me about how powerful the intelligence community has been and how much it's so inextricably linked to some really meaningful points in my life. Um, And I'm so proud to be a part of the IC. I'm so proud to be able to say my parents came here with a hundred dollars and I'm helping national security. And that's, that's like being a parent, not sleeping literally. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Anjuma for saying yes. And hopefully you'll say yes again. I will definitely. Anything I can do to talk about how cool it is to be a, uh, a woman in the IC. So thank you. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly Podcast. We want to thank the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School for their technical sponsorship and Amazing Women of the IC for their promotion. To learn more about Iron Butterfly Media, visit our website at www.ironbutterflymedia.com. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. To find out more about AWIC, email amazingwomen.ic at gmail.com. And if you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we want to thank Amanda Young, Fierce Fire, for production assistance, and Gracie Richberg for marketing assistance. Stay Stay fierce, and we'll we'll talk talk next time. time.